Wherever cancer is, Hancock Health will fight. In any part of you and in all corners of East Central Indiana. From Indianapolis to Greenfield to Knightstown to Rushville. From hospital rooms to family rooms, we fight. With technology and medicine. With care backed by the wisdom of Mayo Clinic. For you, for your family, and for your future in Rush County. We fight cancer here. HancockHealth.org slash cancer. You're listening to the Kendall and Casey Show on 93 WIBC. Sitting in for Rob Kendall and Casey Daniels today, we have across the desk from me, Abdul Hakeem Shabazz. Always good to be here. Uh, thank you for being here. I am Brad Kloffenstein. I am president of the Greater Lawrence Chamber of Commerce, amongst other things. So, Abdul, I wanted to talk to you um, about all these states that are potentially trying to take Donald Trump off the primary ballot. The latest Michigan Supreme Court is not going to hear the Trump case, which allows him to stay on. But I wanted to have you help me break down a little bit what's going on, why Colorado was different, and why all of this is setting a bad precedent. Well, I see. I don't necessarily think it is, uh, because it, in a nutshell, it's, it's what the legal system does. We, you know, right. we have differences, we work them out, and eventually the Supreme Court, uh, if necessary, has the has the final say. Uh, the issue is, did Donald Trump violate, I want to say, Article 3 of the 14th Amendment that says if you participate in an insurrection or led insurrection or were insurrection against the government, you cannot hold an office? In a nutshell, that's what the whole argument is about. And so it goes back to January 6th. And was January 6th insurrection, and did Donald Trump you know, lead it, was involved in it, et cetera? In Colorado, uh, the Supreme Court said, yes, he did. They found that he was in an insurrection. Now, now that was because there was a trial in Colorado, correct? Yes, you're right. It, there, was a, there was a trial, and there was, there was a finding that Donald Trump committed an insurrection. Mm-hmm. And even in the, in the, it was a four to three decision. And I know some folks are saying, well, these were all partisans. Like, well, the Colorado Supreme Court is all Democrats. So you can't say it's a partisan. It, right. That's what it was. And even in, the, even, in the, even in the dissent, the three justices who said that you know, he should be on the ballot, they said he was, a, he was part of an insurrection. The question is, is he an officer of the United States? I say if you're the president of the United States, yes, you are. But... But exactly. that's a whole other. Yeah, that the the, the, yeah. <laughs> the official of the federal yeah. government. Exactly. Uh, however, in Michigan, the issue wasn't so much insurrection. The issue was more procedural matter, and that Donald Trump has not been found guilty of an insurrection, so we can't necessarily keep him off the off the ballot. So, in a nutshell, that's where that's where this is. And so, it was, it was probably going to take the the U.S. Supreme Court to say, "Hey, yes, he was an insurrection. Or he was in an insurrection." Or they could do one of two things. They could uphold the Colorado Supreme Court ruling, and then he's off the ballot in the Supreme Court. Or they could just limit it to Colorado. Like, for purposes of Colorado, like Bush v. Gore. Only right. applies in Bush v. Bush v. Gore. Or they could decide not to hear it at all, and then it just kind of goes goes from there. But in a nutshell, was Donald Trump part of insurrection? I would say, yes, he was, because that's what January 6th was. You want to argue with me? No. Abdullah wibc.com or Abdul, attyabdul abdul at uh, gmail.com that's my email address so feel free to if you want to argue that uh and should donald trump be on the ballot uh i don't think so so then this brings up a bigger question can other states like could indiana or kentucky look at that colorado case and use that as a finding of fact to keep keep them off the ballot or does the colorado case because it was a local case only apply to colorado 
it only applies to Colorado, but there are two types of uh, legal authority. There's what's called uh, persuasive legal authority and then what's called sort of mandatory legal authority. So if the, if the Indian Supreme Court issues a ruling, that applies to Indiana, you have to follow it. If the Illinois Supreme Court issues a ruling, you don't have to follow it, but it's sort of persuasive authority. It's sort of looking at what, what, are your, what are your friends saying, what are your friends doing, and maybe that can give us, give us some guidance. So somebody theoretically could file a lawsuit to keep Donald Trump off the ballot here in Indiana. It, 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 it is not impossible, and if you find a judge with a sympathetic ear, they say, hey, Trump can't be on the ballot, but then again, but, but, but no ballot deadlines have, have, been, have been passed yet or filed yet. Because that's not until I want to say uh, January 10th is the first day that you can file. That you can file. Yep. The 9th is the last day to file. Uh, so it, it could get interesting real fast, real quick. So from a holistic standpoint, wouldn't it behoove the Indi- or the uh, U.S. Supreme Court to address this just so you don't have chaos leading up to the election? Yes. Um, I mean, that, yeah, because effectively you've got 50 states, Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., Guam. All of them could do this differently. All of them could rule on it. Now, the Colorado GOP has said that they'll just do a caucus, which then yeah. that would then begin to another question. Why doesn't everybody just do a caucus and get a, do away with the primaries? I mean, why have the But why pay for the primary yourself when you get the taxpayers to do it? Abdul, Sounds familiar? Abdul, you make my head hurt, man. <laughs> I know, I know. And so I will. But then so, again, also, but the but the bigger question too is, how do you run for president from a jail cell? It's called Georgia. <laughs> yeah, well, you might have an issue in Georgia. So, and by the way, presidential pardons don't work in state courts. That's true. They don't. That's only, only in federal only, stuff. Only federal stuff. Yeah, so federal crime. So I saw that. Uh, yeah, Biden pardoned some people that were marijuana possession marijuana possession yeah. but yeah only in federal parks or um only, national parks only, or- only, only 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 federal only 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 if there was a federal component to it and by the way the pardons were just for the marijuana possession used when people get arrested for possession and get arrested for other stuff as well so the possession thing can go off your record but the other stuff stays but you're, you're still on yeah so so let's get back into this whole ballot access well not even ballot access but just primary elections Primaries are fundamentally a party function. The libertarians seem to nominate candidates just fine at a privately funded convention. In fact, in Indiana, they're not even allowed to be part of a primary. Um, So should all states just go to that? Should we get rid of the primaries and go to just a complete caucus or convention system? I would say stick with the primary unless it's going to be an open primary. Uh, kind of like what some states do, which is like uh, California. I think don't they have a top two primary? Yeah. Unless unless somebody gets like sixty percent of the vote, uh, the top two vote getters they go on to the general election. Then you take it uh, from there. I am much more willing to deal with an open primary system than this nonsense we have here uh, in Indiana, which uh, Judge Patrick Dietrich uh, technically threw out, which I know we're going to talk about uh, in a little bit. Uh, in a nutshell, yes, I would much rather political parties nominate their candidates at a convention and then. Then present those present those candidates to the voters, and then take it from there. But the, then the question is, well, you're just going to have party insiders picking a smoke-filled background. Well, what do you think a primary is? Only people who participate. Yeah, you, you have what ten percent turnout or something, which is only thirteen percent of the of the Indiana population technically participates right. in, in a primary. So it's, it's the same insiders doing, yeah. doing 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 the exact same thing. And by the way, also uh, conventions technically do the same thing as California does. Because at a convention, unless you get 50% of the vote, 50 plus one, you keep going until somebody gets 50%. 
Well, with ranked choice voting, which is you kind of go with my first pick, second pick, third pick, it's theoretically the same concept. Now, I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. So, yeah, so the way it works is you go into uh, your polling place, and you take your ballot, and you put Abdul Hakeem Shabazz as my first choice, and Brad Kloffenstein as my second choice, and Jack Johnston as my third choice. Sorry, Jack, that you are so far down the list on my ranked choice voting. Uh, I haven't heard your platform. You might end up go ascending on that list. So, so if somebody does not get a majority on the first round, and this can pretty much happen instantaneously, then anybody who voted for whoever was the last place in whatever, however long your list was, then it goes to their second choice, and that becomes their vote. And it just keeps lopping off the lowest vote vote getters until somebody has 50% at the top. And that way... Ideally, you get somebody who is palatable to the masses, and it keeps... Right now, I personally think we have a problem. The way our primary system is set up, the Republicans, you have to run far to the right in order to attract Republican votes. If you're a Democrat, you have to run far to the left to attract Democrat voters. Then you get to the general election, and you get extremes from both of those parties in the general, and there's a large swath right down the middle, and somebody like me unless there's a libertarian on the ballot, doesn't have anybody to vote for. Exactly. And actually, uh, and, and not only that is an issue with, uh, with who to vote for, it's also an issue, an issue with governing. Uh, because as uh, the Marion County Democrats are finding out in the City County Council, which is another story I'll be working on uh, for next week, is they have quite a few people who ran in primaries, but maybe a little bit further to the left than where Holy the cow. mayor and where the, some other folks are. The, uh-huh. the stated socialist uh-huh. beyond... Marxist yep. socialist. Exactly. And he's now on your city county council. Yep. So, which, yes, yeah, so the Democrats are wrestling with that in Marion County. The Republicans have been wrestling with that at the state house of what do you do with a supermajority and how do you keep everybody headed in the same direction and have it be good public policy? Or what do you do with a drunken sailor? <laughs> <laughs> that voice that you just heard is Abdul Hakim Shabazz. I am Brad Kloffenstein. We are filling in all day today for Kindle and Casey. This is 93 WIBC. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. stuff uh brad kloffenstein abdul hakeem shabazz we are sitting in for kindle and casey today here on 93 wibc um so you get neither kindle nor casey but you get lots and lots of abdul who i could talk to for hours and hours and we have done that in the past yes we have (laughs) so so usually that is over a beer which then morphs into several topics i wanted to talk to you Uh, i should have had jack key up the uh, Haber and Nigel booze news sounder. Uh, I'm not sure. Probably, you probably don't. You might not have access to that for the show. We yeah. don't need it. We don't need it. But okay. we are going to talk about some alcohol, Abdul. I don't know if you even like those sorts of things. Yes. I always find alcohol uh, interesting uh, because uh, I remember the first time you and I actually really talked about alcohol. This was, oh gosh, like years and years ago. Uh, it was when... Uh, there was a thing about uh, India has like this three-tiered system of retailers, wholesalers, distributors. Yes. And 
of your wholesaler. You can be on a retailer, and it, it was weird. But they were they were they're they trying to change the alcohol laws of who could sell and who could buy. And I was like, okay, I need I need an expert. This this is confusing to me. So we need a uh, some sort of a diagram over here on the whiteboard where I, I yes I can map all this out for you. Um, so we're gonna start. So you Indiana has a three tier system. So you have a manufacturer who is the brewer or the distiller or the vintner. And then, um, I, most of the time, they then have to sell their products through a distributor. And um, now, Indiana law, if, they're, if you're a smaller microbrewer who brews less than, I think it's 60,000 barrels of beer a year, uh, you can self-distribute if you like. Um, and uh, I'm not sure where it stands on distilleries. I think they all have to go through a, a distributor. However, if you're a beer distributor, you can distribute beer and wine. If you're a liquor distributor, you can distribute liquor and wine, but you can't do beer, wine, and liquor. And that has been a big fight at the state house for years and years now. I, I remember having a conversation with former House Speaker Brian Bosma. I was like, Mr. Speaker, what is up with Indiana's Byzantine alcohol laws? And the speaker said, Bill, that's an insult to Byzantines everywhere. <laughs> it is. <laughs> for, for those of you who like to just peruse Indiana Code, it is Indiana Code 7.1 and then lots of sections that go into 7.1. Um, so then after that, then you have retailers. So those would be bars, restaurants, liquor stores, pharmacies, grocery stores, and several others that include um, river front licenses and casinos and that sort of thing um so there are lots of different nuances in there ideally all those permits for either a bar a restaurant or a liquor store are controlled by population they call that the quota system so for a bar or restaurant there is one beer only license for every 1500 in population there is one beer and wine license for every 1500 there's one beer wine and liquor license for every 1500 however abdul that's not necessarily the case and this is where you and i came in uh and you had me on as as your expert guest, which, mind you, I was at the American Beverage Licensees Conference out in Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia, and we'd had a reception hosted by the distillers of Kentucky, the bourbon distillers. And so I might have still been under the influence of the things <laughs> from the night before, and I'm talking to you in my hotel room, and I was a little loose on some of the things I said on the air. Um, but what you were asking me about is what are these riverfront permits? They are basically permits that are outside of the quota system. So when you know you suddenly see all these restaurants or someplace opening up, like in it, Fort Wayne, like in Fort Wayne, or yeah, that there's and pretty much the quota system is a joke now. Nobody follows it. It doesn't matter. I mean, and it doesn't even have to be a river. It can be just a stream that has water in it half the year. Some of our friends, like in Fortville, have have used that, and then you just have to be within like 500 yards of it. So it's a ridiculous sort of thing. So anyhow, so we had questions. So I the one the first thing I saw was that there is a federal lawsuit that challenges the ban on at home distilling. So apparently, back in the Carter administration, Jimmy Carter signed into federal law a he lifted the prohibition on home brewing and home wine making. However, he left the prohibition on at-home distilling, which still exists to this day. So, so a, I can't take my potatoes and make vodka? You cannot do that, Abdul. <laughs> you would be in violation of federal law if you did so. 
and then that would that would qualify you to be Indiana Attorney General. And I'm, which is true. I'm, I'm, but I'm trying to see uh, under what auspices uh, is the federal lawsuit? Because under the 21st Amendment, you, you you can't necessarily ban alcohol, but you can pretty much regulate it. Correct. So yeah. So the 21st Amendment allows states to regulate alcohol with some guardrails that they have to have a three tiered system. Some states have a state run beer or beer, wine, and liquor distribution system. Others have hybrids. Um, so, and most states allow, so like the, the home brewing law is what opened it up for states to allow microbrewers. And that, that had a lot of reasons why we lost so many breweries between 1933 and about 1978. Wow. So, yeah, because all, all I remember from uh, the 21st Amendment, which uh, brought alcohol, which ended prohibition, was, uh, was, was, was alcohol, and the states could still regulate alcohol for health and safety reasons and some other things but but you can't but you can't necessarily ban it so to speak right so uh this lawsuit was brought by the hobby distillers association an organization with over 1500 members representative represented by the competitive enterprise institute filed this federal lawsuit against alcohol tobacco tobacco tax and trade bureau in the department of justice over the the prohibition on home distilling so abdul let me ask you before we get into this the whole distribution thing what's the big deal shouldn't this shouldn't you be allowed to distill at home or is that going to just bring in revenuers and the world's going to go to hell i I go back and forth on uh beer's one thing because one thing to you know have the tub and of whatever and the yeast and the tubes and all that a hard alcohol like uh can, can you do this without blowing up the neighborhood is my question yes so well society has some issues and, and i have offered and i have been told that i'm maybe too much of an insider um indiana's alcohol laws in general need somebody to come in and just look at it from 10,000 feet and say, what is it we're really trying to accomplish here? Who are we trying to protect? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? Um, but I, I'm with you. So, you know, really since the late 80s, I call it, there's been somewhat of a war on beer, um, notwithstanding the microbrewers. But, you know, when you and I were in college, keg parties were all the rage. Well, then they wanted to cat college campuses wanted to crack down on keg parties so they made it so you couldn't have a keg party and they were all byo so instead of having a keg which you know as we know it's hard to it you can get drunk you can take take yourself to the limit where you don't feel well but you're generally not going to kill yourself on beer right but all that did was said you weren't having keg parties anymore. People then started bringing flasks and spirits, and so cracking down on keg parties just forced people into drinking lots of spirits, which opens up a whole other issue of health concerns and certainly overindulging, um, which keep young people are are apt to do. Well, but- I, I will say this: uh, I went to uh, nor- I graduated from uh, Northern Illinois University, got my undergrad degree, and Back then, you could still have a keg at a party. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't remember much after that, but you could still have a keg <laughs> at, at a party. So, yeah, just bet you went to the bathroom a lot and you were kind of bloated. And yeah. yeah. So, but so anyhow, so so now it's 
is alcohol bad or is it an economic development tool? Because I, I know a lot of municipalities wrestle with this, where they will say that the local tavern is bad. At the same time, they're creating all these riverfront permits because they want new bars and restaurants to come in because that is economic development. So, Like a marijuana dispensary. I don't know what you're talking about, Abdul. Those sorts of things are illegal here in the state of Indiana, so I pretend they don't exist anywhere. Sure. <laughs> Hey, by the way, how about we put casinos in four corners of the state so we really don't say we have casinos here? It's like being just a little bit pregnant. Yes. <laughs> now, well, we, we kind of let them eke in a little bit with uh, with uh, French Lick, and then we had the horse tracks, and then the horse tracks went to the legislature and said, hey, we're, we're not making a lot of money on the horse racing, so how about you let us just have some slot machines? We'll never ask you for anything else ever. And the legislature said, Sure, we will give you some slot machines. And then the very next year, they're like, these slot machines are great. And the horses are still okay. We don't make a lot of money on those. But you know what would really be good is if you let us have cartoon dealers. We'll call them cartoon dealers. So now you can play table games at the casinos in Anderson and Shelbyville. Am I misconstruing any of this? No, no, you're not. And by the way, when we come back, uh, because it's 1027 here on 93 WBC, Brad Kloppenstein, Abdul Hakim Shabazz, uh, in for Kendall and Casey this morning. I have a question about casinos. And, and it, it's from an experience I had in St. Louis. And my question is, is it really worth a community to build a casino if there's no other touristy attraction thing there no no ask gary <laughs> ask gary no that nothing else builds up around it in fact you look at any community in the state of indiana french lick possibly being the lone exception um maybe a little bit in rising sun but no typically they put these casinos out all by themselves the people who go to the casinos don't go to anything else in the community so any bar or restaurant that's off property doesn't do doesn't glean anything from this. Um, the local community does at least get some revenue. So, like I, I say, Rising Rising Sun might be one of my exceptions. Uh, downtown Rising Sun is actually nice, and you can see that there's they've put some money into uh, rehabilitating that area. Um, French Lick is kind of the same way, but it's become more of a destination resort. They've got the golf courses yeah. that are there. There's some other hotels that have, spr- that have sprouted up. There's some other entertainment options, but I think that that. That was what the French Lick community wanted. But Gary, no. Uh, Lawrenceburg, no. The one that's outside of Louisville, but it's 15 miles downriver, no. Um, even the one in downtown Evansville, I don't think does a whole lot for downtown Evansville. So it's... That one is kind of fun to swing by when I'm in Evansville. Well, they are. I mean, I guess I'm not a... Maybe it's just not all that attractive to me. I'm not a big gambler. Um you know, I, I learned a long time ago, I'm not a good card player. I lose when I do those sorts of things. And they always say it's good to be the house. So whenever I have 50 bucks that I want to gamble, I end up just buying Churchill Down stocks <laughs> and then I become the house. So, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I got a question about that when we come back uh, from checking in with news. Oh, sure thing. So you're listening to Brad Kloffenstein, Abdul, Kim Shabazz. We're sitting in for Kendall and Casey on 93 WIBC. 1035 on 93 WIBC. Brad Abdul Hakim Shabazz. We're sitting in for the Kendall and Casey show today. They will be back after the new year, taking some well-deserved time off. Now, Abdul, this is normally the time of the show when they would review voicemails. Um, now, neither you nor I have access to their voicemails, so we don't have any voicemails to play today. However, 
If you, the listener, would like to leave a voicemail for Rob and Casey and tell them how great we're doing or tell them how much we suck, I'm going to give you that voicemail. I I would think it'll be a mixed bag. Some people will say, <laughs> oh, they were charming gentlemen and we really enjoyed them. And there will be other people who say, oh my God, never let those two back on the air again. Or say we're both. <laughs> or, 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 or they could say both in the, in the same same voicemail. Uh, that number is 317-684-8444. Put that in your phone so the next time you're drunk, those are the best voicemails, in fact. So... I'm sure that Rob and Casey would love to hear from you probably sometime shortly after midnight on Sunday night, Monday morning into the new year. Probably. Those will be the best voicemails. (laughs) (laughs) So, Abdul, uh, right here on our uh, on the notes of things I wanted to talk to you about today, because you are the knower of all things politics and Indiana. The Indiana Supreme Court has deemed Indiana's two consecutive primary election requirement to be unconstitutional. Um, Well, not the Supreme Court. It wasn't the Supreme Court? No, that was... uh, It was a lower court? Yeah, uh, Marion County Court. Oh, Marion County... Okay, Marion County Court. So this can and will be appealed, is being appealed. Yeah, to to the Indiana Supreme Court. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. Who does this affect... um, which I think it affects probably 80% of Indiana voters because, as we mentioned in a previous segment, uh, we have about a 10%, 15% voter turnout in the primaries. And for somebody to vote in two consecutive primaries uh, that that me of the same party, that is very few people who could even ascend to that 13% level. 13% of the population. 13% of the population is really all yeah. that's eligible to run for office. Yeah, and just to sort of recap, just to get up to speed, uh, John Russ, uh, who's a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, uh, filed to run. Uh, however, uh, because he did not meet Indiana's requirements, which is vote in two consecutive primaries or get a letter from your county chairperson, uh, he was not allowed to run, so he filed a lawsuit in Marion County Court. Uh, Marion County Judge uh, Patrick Dietrich uh, came back with an opinion that basically said uh, by requiring someone to, to vote in two primaries, you're putting what are called additional qualifications on the office. And you can't do that because the Constitution says, you know, 18 years old and this, and that's... that That's the Indiana Constitution. That's it. But to say you got to run in a primary or two primaries, you, you can't, can't do that. Uh, so uh, that was his decision. And it was effective immediately. So you got people who are getting ready to file uh, on January 10th. However, it was immediately appealed uh, to the Indiana Supreme Court, and they're going to hear the arguments on February 12th. Now, a couple of things. Number one, usually if it's a, if it's a court order, the Supreme Court will stay that court order unless until they, until they actually hear it. Not this time. They did not stay Judge Dietrich's order. And which I thought was interesting because normally the, the courts are very close in about how they're going to rule and judge, but you can kind of sort of read between the tea leaves and, and g- engage a little bit of speculation. Uh, but when the court did not stay the order, I was like, holy crap. I didn't say crap. He was another four-letter uh, yeah. word. <laughs> yeah. It starts with an S. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was like, crap. oh, whoa. <laughs> and so when I found out the Supreme Court put their date on, which is February 12th, uh, that's right in the middle of a bunch of filing deadlines. The 9th is the last day to file. The 16th is the last day to withdraw, and the 29th is the last day to do the to do the to do the challenge. And so I emailed the Supreme Court for a story I'm working on for Monday, like, "Hey, uh, you guys realize the 12th is in the middle of these filing deadlines?" And they're like, "Yeah, we know." Uh, so okay. So for those who don't know, John Rust is a large uh, egg farmer. He 
John Rust is not a large man. He sells a lot of eggs, though. So uh, he's down in Jackson County, down by Seymour. And um, what, he voted in the last Republican primary? But yeah, but not, not the one before. But not the one before. And because the state Republican Party has already endorsed Jim Banks, his county chairwoman would not sign off on his candidacy. So that was the only other way to get on the ballot. And so what is her issue with John Rust? Um, she just doesn't doesn't like him so, I, and she I, likes towing the party line she i think she's also like the district this, she's the district director for aaron houchin which makes it even more weird more interesting in a, in a forrest gump type manner uh, Air, uh amanda lowry is a district director for aaron houchin who's a congresswoman in the ninth congressional district aaron houchin uh, was one of the co-authors of indiana's two primary law like almost like 10 years ago that was to prevent people like trey hollingsworth uh quote unquote tennessee trey from running again uh, in an Indiana election. So it's kind of like the the Watergate scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest Gump says, I can't sleep. There's some there's some lights on that room across the hall over there. The next thing you know, it's the, it's the Watergate burglars and Nixon resigns. So in a weird way, had Amanda Lowry just allowed Russ to be on the ballot and just let him go and then probably lose to Jim Banks, a, a more well-known candidate, they'd have been fine and nothing would have happened. But this is what happens when you get uh what's the phrase too cute by half yes all this could have been avoided and to just let him on the ballot now we have major change here in indiana so so this two primary law only came about i don't even think it was 10 years ago i want to say it's been like in the last four or five but even when they passed that my thought was they're getting a little too cute and yeah i think that they're gonna have some challenges but like you said it, most offices in Indiana, you only have to be 18 years of age and a registered voter. And, and lived in the state for at least a year. Lived in the state for at least a year. Sometimes you just have to have lived in your district for the for the year prior to taking office. So, do not allow, and not be a felon. Um. So, yeah. So the so the the courts are basically saying that yeah, this is adding an undue burden because it then yeah to establish that. If you're 18 in a best case scenario, you vote in a municipal primary when you're 18, you vote in a general election primary when you're 19, and then it's another two years before you get to yeah, but general see, election. Yeah, but see, but to, to, be, to hold a public office, you have to be at least 18 years old. And there's no way you could run in a primary because there's no way you could have voted. Right. In those- so that's what I'm saying. That, yeah. yeah. The minimum that you could, you could be 21 before you're even eligible to run right. for anything. Exactly. So, and Which, once the, again, adds additional qualification to the office. And people were saying, well, Judge Dietrich, he's a rhino. Like, no, actually, he's been a strict constructionist. Yeah. He's following the words of the document. I, I support the courts on this wholeheartedly. So, And not to mention his argument, his 17th Amendment argument about, about state legislatures and voting. I was like, wow. But it, it, was, it was a well-thought-out uh, opinion. And number two, also... He said this was probably a little bit of different situations we talked about earlier. Had the parties pay for their own primaries, but because right. it's taxpayer funded, that adds a whole other dimension to this. It does. So now let me ask you. So as this stands right now, can anybody file to run under any party's label now without having voted in any yep. primaries? Yes. Okay. So all all that whole requirement to have voted in a primary is is out. It is out. So they they are now behind where they were because forever it had been you had had to at least vote in the last primary. So that's out. Now there's other offices. So like if you're running for a statewide office or president, whatever, and you want to appear on a statewide ballot, you've got to get 
500, 500 valid signatures of voters from each of Indiana's nine congressional districts. So yes. you need a minimum 4,500, but in reality, you probably need twice that number because some people don't know where they live. They're not voting. They're not eligible to vote. They're not registered, whatever. Um, so it is quite a burden to actually run for office. Now, the flip side of that is, in the state of six, seven million people, you should easily be should be e- e- easily eligible to get forty five at least forty five hundred valid signatures of, of valid voters, which is why you pay people one hundred fifty grand to do that because they have a system, they have a process, and and, and that's what they do. Which is why the question is going to be: I want to say Eric Doden has his signatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suzanne Crouch, I've been told, to have a little bit of an issue getting hers, but she should have hers. Brad Chambers should have his. Uh, Mike Braun should have his. The question is going to be, will Curtis Hill get his signatures? Because Curtis doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of money, but he has a, he has a, he has a big volunteer he, He's been a statewide office holder, yeah. so there's a, there's a chance. So we could have up to five people running for governor in the state of Indiana. Um, yeah, the, the whole thing just seems anti-competitive. And I found it interesting just the way they're treating this Indiana Senate race on how early the state party got behind Jim Banks and endorsed because it was way before the filing deadline. And clearly it was to chase anybody else out of thinking about running. Do they think that Jim Banks would be in jeopardy if he had a, if he had an opponent? Um, I, I mean, in po- first of all, in politics, anything can happen. Right. So that's why I never use the terms never and always because anything, anything is possible in the, in the political universe. With that said, I think let's just send a message that, hey, you can run, that's fine, but here's who the party's going to be supporting. Here's who's here's who the party is behind. Lo and behold, John Russ comes along. And good luck to all the rest of you. Yeah, exactly. So that voice is Abdul Hakim Shabazz. I am Brad Kloffenstein. We are filling in today for uh, Rob and Casey. You're listening to 93 WIBC. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Fifty ninety three WIBC. You are listening to the Kendall and Casey Show with neither Rob Kendall nor Casey Daniels. Instead, you have the the A team. Well, at least half the A team. You got an A player and a C player here. <laughs> Sitting across the desk is an A player and a B player. An A player and a B player. There we go. I've been calling myself. I've been on the air a bunch lately over the last couple of weeks because a ton of people here at WIBC had vacation use it or lose it vacation time so i've been kind of the utility infielder so yeah they plug me into this show they plug me into the afternoon show whatever my instructions are brad make sure that we air the commercials when i did uh talk radio in springfield i was doing it part-time on saturday morning and was sort of between attorney general jobs and lawyering jobs so i became the permanent part-time host (laughs) yes exactly And, and actually there's nothing wrong with that it's fun uh i I get to come in here with you and and hang out. So it basically, this is the same thing that you and I would do at the bar at my house. Just other people get to listen in. 
Exactly, and there's no alcohol and no profanity. <laughs> no, well, exactly. Those are two downsides of this. But, but you know what? It's a ton of fun, and I enjoy doing it. So, Abdul, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, there was a six-year-old boy that was put on a wrong, the wrong Spirit Airlines flight. Uh, he was flying from Philadelphia, going to see his grandmother in Fort Myers. He ended up in Orlando. Um, which is a bit of a problem because Spirit does not fly from Orlando to Fort Myers. So the grandmother had to drive all the way from Fort Myers to Orlando. It was a four-hour drive each way and uh, pick him up. Uh, Spirit Airlines has paid for her mileage and offered to pay for the boys' flights to and fro and for the grandmother to fly to Philly. However, the family is thinking about filing a lawsuit. Abdul, what are your thoughts on this, and is this lawsuit worthy? Well, anybody can sue, but here's here's a question. We kind of talked about this uh, when I filled in on uh, WVON radio uh, the other day. Is how does the boy, a six year old? First of all, would you let your six year old fly fly alone? Which is like, uh, uh, people do it, um, but yeah, it doesn't happen very often. But my thing is, uh, how does a six year old get on the wrong flight? Because you got a boarding pass. Right. And the boarding pass tells you what your flight is, what gates you're on, and what time you leave. And, and yeah, you scan that when you when right. you go in. So even if he had somebody from the airline who wasn't re- looking really close, they just they probably ask him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Florida. They're like, oh, here's a plane going to Florida. But they should have scanned, scanned his boarding pass and said, uh, this is not the Florida that you should be going to. Right. And who dropped him off at the airport? Was was it was it the parents? Did they did they drop off at the right? I'm sure they didn't just give them curbside service. Like, hey, son, see you later, bye. Click and you know go on your merry way. So you can sue the airline, yeah, but you're gonna to to me is the the family's gonna have some kind of fault in all this because somebody should have made so. sure that the boy got on the right plane. Okay, here's your boarding pass. Here's your phone number. You know, call me. You know, talk to the airline, et cetera, et cetera. That that would have all made sense, or or at least gone through security with you know with my my, my six-year-old's gonna be fine by himself who's the person gonna be with him to take him through security and through the whole through the whole thing yeah and usually they've got that hammered out yeah i'd be curious to hear where the failure occurred on this uh i'm sure that yeah not scanning his boarding pass it should there should have been bells and whistles and nuclear fallout signals going on when they're like no this is the wrong plane but somehow he got on there so Makes me. I'm getting on a plane this afternoon. I hope they take me where I'm going. Or, or, or at the very least, you. But you. Uh, a friend of mine would do this with his wife. They they do their honeymoon dates at the airport. Said a really nice restaurant. So they just buy a cheap, you know, five dollar ticket somewhere, get through security, and then go to the airport and go eat, and then go then go back home. Like, at the very least, you could have done that just to make sure, you know, that your six year old gets to where your six year old needs to go. Yes. So. Now, my thought is, if I get on the wrong plane today, I hope I get to go somewhere warm. (laughs) (laughs) So, Abdul, I don't know if you saw this. um, An Indiana woman drunkenly drove to a local jail to bail her friend out of jail, and then she ended up kicking sheriff's deputies and ended up in the clink herself. Uh, This was down in Columbus, Indiana, Bartholomew County. So um, she didn't go over a rail or anything? or Did she go over a rail? <laughs> she didn't go over a rail and into a ditch for six no, days? No, no, no. She drove into a uh, secured parking garage that apparently she was not supposed to be in and started chatting up a deputy who noticed this woman might be intoxicated. 
Uh, this also happened at about 3 a.m. Are you shocked by the timing of this? No. Um, Nothing good ever happens after 11 o'clock at night. So, uh, 58-year-old Stephanie Horn. You'd think that she would know better. So, uh, yeah, she started talking to the uh, police officer, and he's like, um, are you intoxicated? And I think she pretty much told him to go to hell. Did, did you did you walk or did you drive? Well, I drove here. Yeah, I, of course I drove here. It's too cold to walk. Okay, thank you. I'll tell you what, we got to have a nice little holding cell for you for a little while. <laughs> That seriously, was, people. Seriously, really. Abdul, if you were her attorney, how would you how would you handle this plea agreement? We're going to plead this one out. How about we do that, and then we don't do this again. I'm dealing with one of these issues right now. It's like, okay, we're going to we're we're going to we're going to plead this out, but we're going to hold you accountable. We're not going to do this again. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'm curious how often this happens. This can't be the first time that this has happened. In fact, I bet it happens a ton. No, usually when someone is, is arrested for DUI, it is not the first time they've done it. It's just the first time they've gotten caught. Right. So, well, or how many times has somebody who's equally intoxicated showed up to the jail to bail out their friend and then ended up getting in the clink themselves? Probably happens in small towns quite a bit. I would, I would think, heck, it probably happens in Indianapolis quite a bit. Here would be a little different. Because you got the big, big criminal justice complex center, and so, so where does it, how does that work now? It used to be you'd go to the city county building on the east wing where the sheriff's department is. I don't, don't ask me how I know this, but that that was where you. I, th- I think you can still do bail there. Okay, but but with the new criminal, with the new, I'm sorry, criminal community justice. Community adjustment, just, not criminal. It's, yeah, which we're still trying to figure all that out. And actually, we're going to talk about a place like the airport. That place is like the airport because the panels, so the flight depart times are always wrong. You can never tell where the heck you're going or where the judges are. And it's on top of a giant coal mine, too. So cancer in 10 years. <laughs> there you go. Government right there. Uh, that voice is Abdul Hakeem Shabazz. I'm Brad Kloppenstein. We are filling in for Rob and Casey today. This is 93 WIBC.